In this episode, we dive into how and why the Bitcoin blockchain can record non-Bitcoin events. In other words, how the technology works to record things like photographs and documents and why that would be useful for us to have as an immutable record or recording of the historical events of an economy and society. And ultimately, how crypto history is cryptographically verifiable macro history. We cover how we can use Bitcoin's blockchain to provide a cryptographically verifiable record of any historical event for the cost of a single transaction, like who did something, who received something, what happened, when did it happen, where did it happen, and potentially even why it happened. How the proof of existence mechanism can log arbitrary data to the Bitcoin blockchain, including data from other blockchains, to make copies of them, how tools like elliptic and chain analysis can de-anonymize many transactions on Bitcoin, how other technologies like zero-knowledge proofs, smart contract chains, and decentralized social networks can extend the capability of what can be hidden or recorded on-chain, how naming and incorporation systems like ENS allow us to hold individuals and corporations accountable for their actions, how crypto credentials, non-fungible tokens or NFTs, non-transferable fungibles or NTFs, and soulbounds can speed up hiring and recruitment processes to increase social mobility around the world. What Blockspace is and why our advancements in Blockspace will allow for the same kind of advancements we've seen with computer processing power, things like having a smartphone that is more powerful than old computers that used to take an entire room, uh, how we can use this technology to protect ourselves from deep fakes, misinformation, and government censorship, and finally, how having a global or national ledger of record would have helped us save thousands of lives during the COVID-19 pandemic and trillions of dollars by curbing global inflation rates. We covered so much in both technical and layman's terms so that anyone could understand these concepts. And since we're just starting out and could really use your support, if you like this episode, please tantalize that like button into a roaring frenzy. Share this episode, comment, sign up, for our newsletter and Discord, and retweet our episodes to at Balajis, that's B-A-L-A-J-I-S, so we can get his attention and get him on the podcast. I promise we'll make it all worth it for you. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Network State Podcast, which may or may not be changed to Network State Insights. Let us know what you think in the comments below. Ever since Balaji started his own podcast called the Network State uh, Podcast, <laughs> uh, after we started it, we decided that we would let him keep that name considering he wrote the book. So <laughs> that makes a lot of sense, but let us know what you think of Network State Insights, um, and maybe that is what you'll see us as next week. Today, we're going to be covering... Uh, the Bitcoin blockchain, or how the Bitcoin blockchain can record non-Bitcoin events. In the last episode, 009, we talked about how the Bitcoin blockchain gives a history that's hard to falsify. So if you haven't uh, already listened to that episode, I would recommend listening to that one first, uh, if you care about understanding the technical side of how all of this works. If not, today we're just going to be going over how the Bitcoin blockchain can record non-Bitcoin events. Okay, so this is a, another very highly technical episode. Um, so if you're not super into that, um, you can feel free to skip it. Uh, but we're going to try our best to also keep this as relevant as possible to the bigger picture as to why these technical things matter um, for the big picture. And so even if you're not technical, we've explained all of these things in layman's terms so that you can at least understand um, what's going on. Okay, so for the price of a single transaction, the Bitcoin blockchain can be generalized to provide a cryptographically verifiable record of any historical event, a proof of existence. And we're going to dive into that concept very soon. For example, perhaps there is some off-chain event of significant importance where you want to store it for the record. Suppose it's the famous photo of Stalin. So here he links out to this uh, photo of Stalin that was actually photoshopped in the early days. Um, and it just goes to show like how far we've come with Famous Photoshop. Famous for Photoshopping right? a lot of photos. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but you can still see, and right here, right, um, that he was photographed with one of his cronies. 
And then in this photo, the crony is gone and the, the photo has been edited, right? And this at that time was a pretty significant way of deceiving uh, the public because there weren't that many records of that original photograph. Okay, um, so because you anticipate the rewriting of history. Now the proof of existence technique we're about to describe wouldn't directly be able to prove the data of the file was real, but you could establish the metadata on the file the who, what, and when to a future observer. These are all concepts we explored in the last episode. Specifically, given a proof of existence, a future observer would be able to confirm that a given digital signature, the who, put a given hash of a photo, the what, on chain at a given time, the when. That future observer might well suspect the photo could still be fake, but they'd know it'd have to be faked at that precise time by the party controlling that wallet. And the evidence would be on chain years before the airbrushed official photo of Stalin was released. That's implausible under many models. Who'd fake something so specific years in advance? It'd be more likely the official photo was fake than the proof of existence. So let's suppose that this limited level of proof was worth it to you. You are willing to pay uh, such that future generations can see an indelible record of a bit of history. How would you get that proof onto the Bitcoin blockchain? The way you do this is by organizing your arbitrarily large external data set, a photo of, or, or something much larger than that, into a Merkle tree. And we're gonna dive into that. Calculating a string of fixed length called a Merkle root, and then writing that to the Bitcoin blockchain through op underscore return. This furnishes a tool for proof of existence for any digital file. Okay, so. Um, before diving into uh, Merkle trees and roots and op return, Raf, uh, you had something to say about why this proof would be worth it to you. Yeah, I, I mean, this is a great intro into a very timely topic, which is how do we deal with the advancements of AI um, and AI produced media? because those are by definition fake <laughs> yep and and suddenly they're populating more and more and they will populate more and more of our content um whether they're done for like constructive purposes or for destructive purposes <laughs> uh, and that's just going to be uh, more accessible so a real interesting thing is trying to run certain data points into the blockchain uh, into our historical equivalent of the Bitcoin at its um as its uh most basic um so that we have proof of existences that we all collectively can agree on or at least capture. Um I guess there the backbone is well if we if we have these coming out we can say whatever AI riffs off of that is no longer accepted and maybe we can try and control a piece of the narrative. I think that's the idea behind this that I think is is most um, current. And actually, we'd love to tweet um, to Balaji about that, actually, and um, how he sees that playing with the uh, advent of AI. I'm sure he's I'm sure he's working on an episode like that right now. <laughs> yeah, we've actually so we're going to be diving into deep fakes later on in this episode as well. Um, but yeah, it is extremely timely, as we've seen with all the different advancements in AI and how many videos you've seen of people just putting out uh deep fakes um some that are hilarious um okay so let's dive into the, what a merkle tree is yeah the, the the big point here is um like who are you who are you motivating in uh, at the end of the day to pay for this infrastructure and how do you make sure that this is accessible to them because governments are notoriously the last to implement innovation mm. and what he's talking about isn't even fully accepted by uh, businesses and definitely not individuals. So uh, I think it's a very high barrier. Um, and I'm not sure when or how we're going to see this in it to have the impact that he's looking at, which is like really a systemic shift. But okay, let's dive into it. Let's see how it works. And let's see we, what we can make a little bit more accessible through this conversation. Cool. So Merkle trees are used to help verify that the transactions in a block are valid and haven't been tampered with. They're a hash-based data structure. Anytime you hear the word hash, just think unique fingerprint or unique code um, or ID or something. That is 
uh, helpful to understand what hashes do technically. So they're a hash-based data structure, which is a way to store and organize data in a computer program. It uses a special kind of function called a hash function to turn the data into a unique fingerprint or hash. Uh, think of it like a librarian organizing books in a library. Each book has a unique call number that helps the librarian put it in the right place on the shelf. In the same way, a hash function creates a unique number that helps the computer program organize the data in the right place. This can be useful for quickly looking up data because the computer program can use the hash function to find the right place in the data structure without having to search through all of the data. It's like finding a book on the shelf using its call number instead of having to search through all the books in the library. So hash-based data structures are used in many different types of computer programming uh, programs, including databases, search engines, and even cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin. Now, the Merkle root is the hash of the final root node. It's like a summary of all the data in the Merkle tree. So if any of the data in the tree is changed, the Merkle root will also change, which can be used to detect any tampering or errors in the data. So it's basically just like the final summary of the Merkle tree. And the important piece of the root is that if any branch on the tree is altered or any leaf is altered, uh, it will also change the root. And so that can detect uh, changes. Now, op return is a special type of script in the Bitcoin blockchain that allows users to embed data in a transaction. So normally when you send Bitcoins to someone, the transaction has two parts, the input, which is the source of the Bitcoins and the output, which is the destination of the Bitcoins. But with op return, you can include additional data in the output, such as a message or a small file. So that could be like a photograph, right? So op return is, a useful, uh, is useful for a variety of purposes, such as proving ownership or authenticity of a document or file, timestamping, or simply attaching additional information to a transaction. However, it's important to note that the amount of data that can be included in an op return output is limited. So it's not suitable for storing large amounts of data. So we'll see how that works with like massive videos um, or things like that. So to bring that all together, right, having understood uh, what a Merkle tree, Merkle root, and op return is, um, he says that this furnishes a tool for proof of existence for any digital file. So proof of existence is a way to demonstrate that a particular piece of digital data, such as a document or file, existed at a certain point in time. It works by using the properties of a blockchain to create a tamper-proof record that verifies the existence of the data. To create a proof of existence, a user would take a hash, a unique code that represents the contents of the data, and store it on the blockchain. Since the blockchain is, the, is a decentralized immutable ledger, it can serve as a public record of the existence of that hash at that particular point in time. So this can be a useful, or this can be useful in a variety of contexts, such as for legal or regulatory purposes, or for verifying the authenticity of important documents or intellectual property. By using a blockchain to create a proof of existence, users can be confident that their data is secure and cannot be altered or deleted without leaving a trace. Overall, proof of existence is a simple but powerful use case for blockchain technology that demonstrates its potential for creating new types of decentralized systems that can be used to provide greater security and transparency in a variety of fields. So let's just extrapolate that out, right? We, we have some use cases there with um, uh, legal and regulatory. Um, and like we talked about in the previous episode, this kind of technology can be used in that example of like Stalin um, or for any kind of government accountability where if their actions were monitored and logged with proof of existence on the Bitcoin blockchain, that's immutable, right? So the original file, if they're held accountable to have to log those original files on the Bitcoin blockchain, um, cannot be tampered with 10, 15, 20 years down the line when they're like, you know what? We want to hide that part of history because it doesn't make us look good. Mm -hmm. I think it's interesting for uh, internal um, affairs, like with politics, when politicians decide to vote one way or another. And to have that all tracked uh tracked down and then have a layer on top of that that's sort of just 
publicizes okay here's you know here's everybody's vote and and what they're voting on and why like oh you can see on this issue they voted this way on that issue they voted that way and in terms of accountability uh we've talked about this in some previous episodes could be some pretty cool stuff um and again how do you make that accessible to the public it you'd think once the information is well tracked it's probably not that big of a deal to make it available it's kind of ticker or something and I will like throw in a little wrench in here um, because this is what I was thinking of as I was reading through all of this. Um, but the question to ask ourselves really is, you know, how much do we as a citizenry of any country uh, want complete transparency with governments? And the, the reason I ask that is, are we, uh, trustworthy enough? Are we responsible enough to truly have a objective form of truth that cannot be manipulated, right? So I guess another way of phrasing the question is, at what points in history has a manipulation of events been to the benefit of humanity as a whole? And that's where we have to um, make a counter argument for whether or not this could this could work. And then the flip side of that, which we dive into towards the end, is um, how this could easily become a massive tool for complete surveillance uh, in every way. And so a complete eradication of privacy. And that is also a very important distinction. Yeah. Yeah, to be honest, um, just uh, the fact that this kind of system could lead to that possibility is already kind of like, mm, I think you have to be really sort of uh, laser focused on wanting to make this a thing, you know, because yeah. otherwise it sounds like the the downside is so like just annoying, you know, like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I'm, yeah, I'm not sure. You could see it with like authoritarian regimes that really want to make it happen, right? Um, but there are other cases in which, you know, if it's a healthily functioning democracy, uh, there will be options where mm. people can choose, right? What needs to be logged and what should not be logged. Um, and that's really where yep. the crux of it is. Okay, yeah. so, right, moving on, we've got, you can do this as a one-off or a single piece of data or as a periodic backup for any non-Bitcoin chain. So you could, in theory, put a digital summary of many gigabytes of data from another chain on the Bitcoin blockchain every 10 minutes for the price of a single BTC transaction, thereby proving it existed. This would effectively back up this other blockchain and give it some of the reversibility properties of Bitcoin. Call this kind of chain a subchain. By analogy to the industrial use of gold, this type of industrial use case of a Bitcoin transaction may turn out to be quite important. A subchain with many millions of off-Bitcoin transactions every 10 minutes could likely generate enough economic activity to easily pay for a single Bitcoin transaction. So to just break down what that means and why this is important is we don't need another Bitcoin for this to work for other forms of logging data. We could uh, copy every transaction on another blockchain into the Bitcoin blockchain. Um, and that process, even though it would cost money each time for a Bitcoin transaction, uh, if that other blockchain, the subchain, is generating economic returns, it could easily pay for itself to be logged forever on the Bitcoin blockchain. So if for whatever reason, that subchain becomes vulnerable or hacked or is coerced into doing XYZ, um, we will still have a copy of its original contents on the Bitcoin blockchain, which is much, much, much harder uh, to change. Yeah. I mean, so, yeah. Yeah, he's laying down, laying down the ground work for why this could potentially work. Um, taking care of the risks. Okay. We're following you, Balaji. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so, and as more people try to use the Bitcoin blockchain, given its capacity limits, it might turn out that only industrial use cases like this could afford to pay sufficient fees in this manner. 
as direct individual use of the Bitcoin blockchain could become expensive. So that means we can use the proof of existence technique to log arbitrary data to the Bitcoin blockchain, including data from other chains. It's basically a summary. Okay. Mm -hmm. So now let's move into how blockchains can record the history of an economy and society. So we just zoomed into detail how you'd log a single transaction to the Bitcoin blockchain to prove any given historical event happened. happened. Now let's zoom out. As noted, the full scope of what the Bitcoin blockchain represents is nothing less than the history of an entire economy. Every transaction is recorded since t equals zero, which is basically just like the beginning of time of the Bitcoin blockchain. Uh, every fraction of a BTC is accounted for down to 100 millionth of a Bitcoin. So nothing is lost, except of course, for all the off-chain data that accompanies a transaction, like the identity of the sender and receiver, the reason for their transaction, the SKU of any goods sold, and so on. There are usually good reasons for these things to remain private or partially private, so you might think this is a feature instead of a problem. The problem is that Bitcoin's design is a bit of a tweener, as it doesn't actually ensure that public transactions remain private. Indeed, there are companies like Elliptic and Chain, Chain Analysis devoted entirely to the de-anonymization of public Bitcoin addresses and transactions. The right model of the history of the Bitcoin economy is that it's in a hybrid state where the public has access to the raw transaction data, but private actors like Chain Analysis and Elliptic have access to much more information and can de-anonymize many transactions. Moreover, Bitcoin can only execute Bitcoin transactions rather than all the other kind of digital operations you could facilitate with more block space. We'll dive into block space soon. But people are working on all of this. So zero knowledge technology like Zcash, Ironfish, and Tornado Cash allow on-chain attestation of exactly what people want to make public and nothing more. So what is zero knowledge technology? So a zero knowledge proof sometimes also referred to as a ZK protocol, is verification method that takes place between a prover and a verifier in a zero-knowledge proof system. The prover is able to prove to the verifier that they have the knowledge of a particular piece of information, such as the solution to a mathematical equation, without revealing the information itself. These proof systems can be used by modern cryptographers to provide increased levels of privacy and security. So there are ways um, using this technology to keep things private uh, is the takeaway there. Smart contract chains like Ethereum and Solana extend the capability of what can be done on-chain at the expense of higher complexity. Decentralized social networks like Mirror and DSO put social events on-chain alongside financial transactions. Um, naming systems like the Ethereum name service or ENS and Solana name service, or SNS, attach identity to on-chain transactions. The takeaway <laughs> there is if you register an ENS name or an SNS name and you attach it to your wallet, now you also have attached that identity of that name service or that username uh, to that wallet. That doesn't mean that your actual real-world identity is tied to that username, but there is a username tied to the wallet. I've done that. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like I feel like How I do go? want my identity to, to be tied. It was very easy and quite cheap. I recommend it. Easier than buying a domain if you have a wallet already set up. I think that's the best analogy, right? Is like it's just like buying a website domain or a username on a social media platform. Yeah. Um if anybody wants to send crypto forever. to me, it's just uh Benros, B-E-N-R-O-S dot E T H. <laughs> very nice. I own my last name. What up? Yeah. <laughs> Okay, so incorporation systems allow the on-chain representation of corporate abstractions above the level of a mere transaction like financial statements or even full programmable company equivalents like DAOs. Um, and new proof techniques like proof of solvency and proof of location, which we'll dive into, extend the set of things one can cryptographically prove on-chain from the basic who, what, when of Bitcoin. So like we yes. talked about in the last episode, Bitcoin allows us to track, there is a way to track the who, what, and when. Proof of solvency uh, 
is a method used by cryptocurrency exchanges and other financial services providers to prove that they have enough assets to cover all of their liabilities. In other words, it's a way to demonstrate that they actually have all the funds that they claim to have and that they are not operating in a way that could put their customers' funds at risk. This is extremely relevant for what we saw with FTX, right? The basic idea behind proof of solvency mm -hmm. is to provide users with a cryptographic proof that verifies the exchange's financial health. This is typically achieved by publishing a proof of reserves or a proof of assets statement that shows the total amount of assets held by the exchange, along with a cryptographic signature that proves that the statement is authentic. So if we had some really robust proof of solvency systems, um, we wouldn't have an FTX crisis. We wouldn't have this massive um, crash. Uh, same goes for if USDC, for example, which is supposed to hold a one-to-one -one reserve of actual US dollars, uh, physical US dollars uh, in cash towards the exact amount that they have in uh, USDC, uh, those kinds of accountabilities are really important to keep the structures of these cryptocurrencies and the uh, trust in these cryptocurrencies alive. And then proof of location is a concept that refers to using blockchain technology to verify the physical location of an individual or device. It's a way of proving that someone or something is actually in a specific location at a specific time, which can have a, a wide range of applications in areas such as logistics, supply chain management, and even elections. The basic idea behind proof of location is to use a combination of GPS technology, blockchain, and smart contracts to create a verifiable and tamper-proof record of a device's location. This is typically achieved by having the device periodically broadcast its location to a network of nodes, which can then verify the location data and add it to the blockchain. Smart contracts can then be used to automatically trigger certain actions based on the device's location, such as releasing a payment or initiating a delivery. The use of blockchain and smart contracts helps to ensure that the location data is accurate and cannot be tampered with, which is important for ensuring the integrity of the overall system. So proof of location is still an emerging technology, and there are a number of technical and practical challenges that need to be addressed in order to make it more widely usable. However, it has the potential to enable a wide range of new applications and use cases that could have significant benefits in areas such as logistics, transportation, and more. Right? So to illustrate the point, any high value asset that's physically being transported from one place to another should be using proof of location to ensure where it is at all times and not release any kind of funds or uh, to protect whoever is sending that item, right? Until the proof of location of that item has been verified as where it was meant to be or be sent. Um, so yeah, there are a lot of problems with that, but ultimately you can see if like, you know, people are moving gold from one bank to another, or people are moving diamonds from one place to another or any high value asset like that. Jeez. It would make a lot of sense. Cheese, absolutely. That's actually top of the list. <laughs> um, okay, so quick, uh, quick stop before we move on. Uh, anything else to dive into on your end, Raph? Uh, no, I made my shout out for people to send me stuff, so I felt like that was pretty good. Yeah, um, that was <laughs> solid enough. Okay, so anyway, so now we have the who, what, when, where, and uh, backed up. Uh, assets for all of these possible transactions. Uh, and that's really powerful just in itself. Now he goes on to say, crypto credentials, non-fungible tokens or NFTs, non-transferable fungibles or NTFs, and soul bounds allow the representation of a non-financial data on-chain like diplomas or endorsements. Okay, so let me break each of these down. I, I don't know if we have to go so deep into all of these but yeah i'm gonna i'm gonna give like brief briefs for for people who don't who haven't heard what these terms are before um you should just get out of here if you haven't heard this <laughs> <laughs> real truth man <laughs> okay no, so go. let's go hit me <laughs> so crypto credentials are you know just like you earn badges at stack overflow just like you earn badges in a video game or just like you earn certifications from google or linkedin 
you could earn crypto credentials. And the difference being that they're on chain. Because they're on chain, you can log into any site with them. And then you can qualify for instant jobs or micro tasks based on having those credentials. So when it comes to decentralized administration and hiring and getting tasks done, having crypto credentials uh, makes it much faster. It's not like a huge improvement to what we already have. For example, if you trust Google's credential for taking a UX course and meaning that you can perform UX tasks, uh, you can just look at that person's LinkedIn and see that. And if you trust that Google's certification is real and that it was fairly um, uh, taken by that user, then you know you can still do that. But that takes a lot more time. The fact that it's a crypto credential means that this could all be decentralized. You don't need to check anything. It's just on chain. And so you have a smart contract to verify. I want to hire somebody for this task. I want to make sure that they have this credential. If they have this credential, automatically uh, pay them when the task is completed, right? Something like that. Um, so to illustrate, there's a site called exorcism.io, which is not exorcism, but E-X-E-R-C-I-S-M.io, where you can learn Python by doing like 50 Python problems, or you can learn JavaScript by doing 70 JavaScript problem problems, and it's recorded on the site. And you can see that counter go up. And so the point that uh, Bology is making through that, this was uh, quoted from a Tim Ferriss podcast um, with Bology, is... Uh, you can see that if people start spending their time learning useful skills like this and building their crypto credentials, rather than spending time building likes and comments on a social platform like Facebook or Twitter, where they don't really own that and the likes don't really have that much value, um, it would stimulate the economy so much more, right? It would add so much more social mobility to people and social mobility in countries where um, it's much more difficult to rise to the top or with poor social mobility. Um, would be a, a game changer, right? And it also allows for somebody who um, is really smart as a virtual assistant in the Philippines or India or Brazil, um, but didn't go to Harvard, can still get this crypto credential and still get that work in a verified decentralized way that's quick, rather than having somebody go through you know, the whole interview process of uh, a Harvard grad. So that's where like having these starts to become really interesting. Anything on that? Well, I think we're good, sir. We, you know, we, we, we have a train to catch, you know, so <laughs> we got to get right. moving. NFTs. Uh, this one, I think if you haven't heard of, you definitely need to Google it, but non-fungible <laughs> token uh, is a term used to describe a unique digital asset whose ownership is tracked on a blockchain, such as Ethereum, uh, and assets that can be represented as NFTs range from digital goods, such as items that exist within virtual worlds, to claims on physical assets, such as clothing items or real estate. Now, let's remember that concept because we're going to dive into that very soon as well as to why that's relevant and, and important. Non-transferable fungibles, or NTFs, is a concept that Bology came up with. Um, so he says, after NFTs, we'll have NTFs, non-transferable, but fungible. The example of it being a college degree in computer science and a better example being an on-chain crypto credential earned for solving a single exercise. Non-transferable because it can't be sold, fungible because all, all did the same exercise. So it's kind of standardizing uh, a diploma or an exercise even better, right? Like here's a unique coding problem. If you solve it, you get this crypto credential. I can't sell that to anybody right? But I have it and it's clear that it's the same that everybody else has passed. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, and then now soul bounds uh, allow the representation of uh, a unique item. So this is pulled from a blog post by Vitalik Buterin. Um, he, he compares it to the world of Warcraft. So I love this. He says, one feature of world of Warcraft is that uh, that is second nature to its players, but goes mostly undiscussed outside of gaming circles is the concept of soul bound items. A soul bound item once picked up cannot be transferred or sold to another player. Uh, most very powerful items in the game are soul bound and typically require completing a complicated quest or killing a very powerful monster, usually with the help of anywhere from four to 39 other players. 
Hence, in order to get your character anywhere close to having the best weapons and armor, you have no choice but to participate in killing some of these extremely difficult monsters yourself. The purpose of the mechanic is a fairly clear. It keeps the game challenging and interesting by making sure that to get the best items, you have to actually go and do the hard thing and figure out how to kill the dragon. You can't just go kill boars 10 hours a day for a year, get thousands of gold, and buy the epic magic armor from other players who killed the dragon for you, right? He's speaking from experience. Yeah, probably. <laughs> but I think that's really interesting because um, now we have a way of potentially having proof that somebody actually did the thing that was difficult. And ultimately, so when it comes to like hiring, uh, recruitment, uh, these kinds of concepts would save so much time, right? Because uh, you don't have to worry about interviews. You don't have to have them do a case study or whatever. It's just you acquired this thing. You can't transfer that thing. That thing is unique to you. Um, and if that means that you did that, meaning you solved this incredibly complex use case that we have, or you solved this problem that, you know, is shared and is very difficult, but that this job requires, I don't have to yeah. check, you know, it's done. Cool. Let's, mm -hmm. let's fast track that hiring process. Let's put um, babies on there too. Sold down <laughs> children to yeah. parents. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> we'll soul bind our kids. Um, okay. So anyway, to recap, crypto, crypto credentials. NFTs and TFs and soulbounds allow the representation of non-financial data on chain like diplomas or endorsement. What's the point? If block space continues to increase, even more of the digital history of our economy and society will be recorded on chain in a cryptographically verifiable yet privacy preserving way. The analogy is to the increase in bandwidth, which now allows us to download a megamite a megabyte of JavaScript on a mobile phone to run a web app, which was an unthinkable indulgence in the year 2000. So to kind of understand this, you have to understand block space. In the context of a blockchain, block space refers to the amount of data that can be included in a single block of the blockchain. Blocks are the units of storage on a blockchain, and they contain a list of transactions that have been validated and added to the chain. The size of a block determines how many transactions can be included in it and therefore how many transactions can be processed by the network at any given time. Block space is typically measured in bytes, and the size of a block can be determined by the specific protocol and consensus mechanism used by the blockchain. The concept of block space is important because it has implications for the scalability and usability of a blockchain. If the block size is too small, the network may not be able to process transactions fast enough, leading to slow transaction times and high fees. On the other hand, if the block size is too large, it may lead to issues with centralization as only a small number of nodes with high bandwidth and processing power would be able to participate in the network. So different blockchains have taken different approaches to block size and block space with some allowing for larger blocks to accommodate more transactions and others using more complex mechanisms such as sharding to achieve scalability. We're not gonna dive into that. Overall, mm -hmm. the optimal block size and block space will depend on the specific use case and requirements of the blockchain in question. So a good analogy for this um, is the just processing power of computers in general, right? So like he illustrated, in the year 2000, we didn't even have smartphones, right? Um, and then you accelerate that. So now we have smartphones where you can load a web app, which again, in 2000 was not thinkable. Um, so the more the efficiency of this technology um, rises, uh, the more we have uh, progress in block space, um, the more we can see much larger and uh, important technological innovations be a part of our daily lives and using them on a daily basis. Okay, so um, this is a breakthrough in digital macro history that addresses the issues of silos, bots, sensors, and fakes. Uh, public blockchains aren't siloed in corporations, but publicly accessible. They provide new tools like staking and ENS style identity. Um, so staking is basically just um, when, a, when users of a blockchain can lock up or freeze some of their cryptocurrency holdings to participate in the network and help secure it. By doing so, stakers can earn rewards in the form of additional cryptocurrency. 
The specifics of how staking works can vary depending on the blockchain, but in general, stakers are required to hold a certain minimum amount of the cryptocurrency and to keep it locked up for a certain period of time. In return, they are granted the ability to participate in the network's consensus, consensus mechanism and help validate transactions. ENS-style identity refers to a type of decentralized identity system that is similar to the Ethereum name service. The ENS is a system that allows users to register human-readable names, such as myname.eth, as Raphael pointed out, and associate <laughs> them with Ethereum addresses. This makes it easier for people to send and receive cryptocurrency without having to remember complex alphanumeric addresses, like the addresses of wallets. ENS-style identity systems expand on this concept by allowing users to create a persistent decentralized identity that can be used across multiple platforms and applications. And so these identities can be verified using cryptography and can be linked to other personal data, such as social media profiles or contact information. Overall, staking and ENS-style identity are both examples of how blockchain technology can be used to create new types of decentralized systems that provide users with more control over their assets and their online identities. And I'll add to that, that this is also how we would hold a president or a leader of some sort accountable. If when they join an organization and they become the leader, they have to have a ENS style identity associated with the wallet that they control. So the wallet being the bank of the country or the funds of a company. Um, and they have to use that for every transaction. We can tie it to them. Right. And so it's clear you, this identity, um, authorize this transaction and it's all on chain and immutable. Okay. So to sum this all up, um, crypto history is cryptographically verifiable macro history. So we can now see how the, exp the expansion of block space is on track to give us a cryptographically verifiable macro history or crypto history for short. This is the log of everything that billions of people choose to make public. Every decentralized tweet, every public donation, every birth and death certificate, every marriage and citizenship record, every crypto domain registration, every merger and acquisition of an on-chain entity, every financial statement, every public record, all digitally signed, timestamped, and hashed in freely available public ledgers. The thing is, essentially all of human behavior has a digital component now. Every purchase and communication, every ride in an Uber, every swipe of a key card, and every step with a Fitbit, all of that produces digital artifacts. So in theory, you could eventually download the public blockchain of a network state to replay the entire cryptographically verified history of a community. That's the future of public records, a concept that is to the paper-based system of the legacy state what paper records were to oral records. It's also a vision for what microhistory will become, not a scattered letter from an Abelard here and a stone tablet from an Egyptian there, but a full log, a crypto history, the unification of microhistory and macrohistory in one giant cryptographically verifiable data set. We call this indelible, com computable, digital, authenticatable history, the ledger of record. Um, and I'm just going to finish up here and then explain the ledger of record. So the, this concept is foundational to the network state, and it can be used for good or ill. In decentralized form, the ledger of record allows an individual to resist the Stalinist rewriting of the past. It is the ultimate expression of the bottom-up view of history and what's written to the ledger. But you can also imagine a bastardized form where the cryptographic checks are removed, the read-slash-write access is centralized, and the idea of a total digital history is used by a state to create an NSA slash China-like system of inescapable lifelong surveillance. This in turn leads, up, uh, leads us to a top-down view of history, the future trajectory we want to avoid where political power is used to defeat technological truth. So that sums up um, the most important takeaways. But the reason that we need to understand um, what a ledger of record really means is uh, how we're going to conclude here. So Balaji gave a keynote speech that highlights the importance of crypto information and the potential it has to transform our society and economy. Uh, according to Balaji, we're currently in the midst of a pivotal shift from fiat information, information that is controlled by central authorities, to crypto information, which is information that is decentralized and controlled by the network. 
Balaji believes that the shift to crypto information is being driven by the increasing centralization and censorship of fiat information, which is leading many people to seek out alternative sources of information that are more decentralized and trustworthy. So Balaji also believes that this shift is happening because of the rise of cryptocurrencies and blockchain technology, which have enabled the creation of decentralized networks that can operate independently of central authorities. And this shift is important because it has the potential to democratize access to verifiably true information and create new opportunities for innovation. For example, the shift to crypto information has the potential to address some of the issues that we experienced during the COVID-19 pandemic by providing a decentralized and verifiable source of information, right? One of the main problems during the pandemic was the abundance of conflicting information from different sources, which made it difficult for people to know what to believe. With a crypto information system, information could be stored on a blockchain in a decentralized manner, meaning that it would not be controlled by a central authority or susceptible to censorship. And this would allow people to access information that is authenticated and verified by the network, which could help to reduce the amount of conflicting information and misinformation. Additionally, since the information is stored on a blockchain, it would be cryptographically secured and tamper-proof, providing an extra layer of security and trust. Now, it is true that more information from non-experts could potentially contribute to misinformation, but a shift to crypto information could actually help to reduce the spread of misinformation in several ways. Firstly, crypto information systems have the potential to provide a more reliable and trustworthy source of information because the information is cryptographically secured and verified by a decentralized network. And so this could help to reduce the amount of conflicting information and misinformation by providing an authenticated and verified source of information that is not controlled by a central authority. So I just break that down for the COVID-19 example. If the WHO puts out a piece of information and it's authentically verified as coming from the WHO, and that is that source of information, we know that governments would not be able to censor that. We also know that it came directly from the WHO, right? Now, you could apply the same to the CDC. You could apply the same to any other country's health organization. You could also apply the same to an individual YouTuber who's talking about their information about what you should do regarding COVID, right? And so really what this is saying is that all we can do is track who is saying what, what they're saying, and verifying that they're actually the ones who are saying it. And this is how we get into like deep fakes and stuff. But secondly, crypto information systems could also help to encourage transparency and accountability by providing a public and tamper-proof record of information. This could help to ensure that information is not being intentionally manipulated or distorted for personal or political gain, right? So Trump saying, oh, we don't have that many deaths, or uh, Xi Jinping saying, oh, the cases aren't that bad here, right? Those things go out the window because now we have these records and they're tracked and they're immutable. Um, finally, the use of crypto information systems could also help to incentivize experts to share their knowledge and information as they could potentially earn rewards or other benefits for doing so. And so this could help to ensure that accurate and reliable information is being disseminated rather than relying solely on non-experts to share information. So overall, while there are potential risks associated with relying on non-experts to share information, a shift to crypto information systems has the potential to provide a more reliable and trustworthy source of information and could help to reduce the spread of misinformation by providing a public, authentic, identifiable, and tamper-proof record of information. We have one more example to illustrate why this would be really important, which is um, to build a censorship-resistant inflation dashboard. Dashboard, And this is actually something that Balaji is offering a 100K investment for. And additionally, if the best dashboard uses Chainlink's crypto oracle technology to get the relevant data on chain, they'll be able to receive an additional 100K grant in link tokens. So to illustrate the point, inflation is a monetary phenomenon, right? a function of money printing. But it is also in part a social phenomenon, a function of mass psychology. If enough of the right people believe that inflation is going to happen, it will. As such, when inflation is happening, there is often a push to censor discussion of inflation itself under the grounds that discussing the problem actually causes it in the first place. 
That is exactly what happened in Argentina and Venezuela over the last decade, which if you haven't seen, their currencies have completely gone to shit. Um, and so that is why a world uh, needs or our world needs a global decentralized censorship resistant inflation dashboard. Um, and so you can imagine, right, just having a true version or a dashboard that actually accurately displays the levels of inflation globally could really stabilize the economic macroeconomic actions of entire countries um, in terms of causing inflation to happen, right? So dramatically decreasing it. Um, and so to conclude all of this, and then to hear your thoughts, Rap, the concept of a ledger of record is foundational to the network state, and it can be used for good or ill, right? Um, so um, notes, comments, thoughts before closing out and concluding. Sure. Um... I think my two biggest takeaways is I'm actually less convinced now that we've gotten into it. Okay. Because my, I think you're just pitting one kind of information versus another kind of information where the de the decentralized will have to bear this huge cost of information certification, which will be always an imperfect system versus a centralized information source which will just say, well, look, we can be much more effective, choose to believe them or us, but at least like we're, we're doing this. And so it's curious for me to see how actually a decentralized um, system of information is actually competitive versus centralized information. Um, the more I got into it, the more I was like, I, I, don't, I don't see what if there actually is a competitive advantage to this. Um, apart from saying, oh, look, you know, we can verify certain information, but then why do I care that it's still a great question of like, why do I care that this information is being certified in this way? Who controls that? To what purpose? Like, uh, for me, those are the same human error questions that you would have uh, for a centralized system. So at the end of the day, maybe I'm missing something. This is worth, uh, I'd like to see if there is more information from Balaji coming our way in because yeah, for me, this is not actually a, a selling point, that strong of a selling point. And then the other, th but what is interesting yeah, for me, this is, is this a, trend, a the initial idea that he proposes that there could be a shift in information systems. That part I think is interesting. Again, I think what the result is not, oh, decentralized is the superior alternative, but rather now we have two conflicting systems of information. And then there's a lot of people in the middle being like, well, actually, I'm unsure if I believe what the Chinese government is saying or what the American government is just shifted now to. Well, I don't know if I care or believe what the governments are saying versus what this crypto record of ledger is saying. Um, so I don't think it's so clear cut in that way. And there may be, maybe I'm reading too much into this or maybe there actually is a bias in this because he is trying to push this um, idea. But I think it would be worth testing out. Um, the reason that he cites for the rise of this information is because there's lower trust essentially in what centralized uh, information um, is doing. I think partly that's done through private sources, partly that's done through public sources like uh, governments. And there within there, there's already different um, motivations that keep the evolution of what how information is displayed already quite dynamic. So adding a layer of decentralization. I don't know if that's actually going to disrupt it in the same way, because we already have two completing powers in that. And then secondly, the analogy that he uses is the rise of cryptocurrency as um, an alternative to like that this has been a rise, but that rise is not, um, we shouldn't take as like exogenous. The rise of cryptocurrencies was linked last year in terms of value to the lower returns that you were being offered from central banking authorities, right? There's a, there's a, there's an inverse relationship in terms of what are the banking interest rates versus um, what are uh, what is the value of uh, cryptocurrency. And so where do you see that relationship in governments? It's much more complex. And I don't think it's this question of censorship or not. Actually, that's going to be driving that. Yeah. So I had a very similar sentiment. Um, and so my conclusion from all of this is kind of like what I started with, with, um, you know, bringing up how much do we trust ourselves? So there's two parts of this, right? One, I think that it is more a solution to the worst case scenarios that we will see 
and are already coming up, then it is better than the current situation. And two is, um, if, if this could be better than the current situation, it means that we trust decentralized information more than centralized information. So let's break each of those down. So the first is, right, let's address deep fakes. Um, with proof of existence, uh, we can use that to address the problem of deep fakes by providing a tamper-proof way to verify the authenticity of digital media. So deep fakes, if you're not aware, are realistic looking manipulated videos, images, or audio recordings that are created using machine learning and artificial intelligence. They can be used to spread misinformation or to deceive people into believing something that is not true. By using proof of existence, it is possible to create a time-stamped immutable record of the original unmanipulated version of a piece of media before it has been altered. And this can be done by creating a hash of the original file and storing it on a blockchain. If the media is later altered, a new hash will be generated and it will be different from the original hash. By comparing the hash of the altered media to the original hash stored on the blockchain, it is possible to determine uh, whether the media has been manipul manipulated and if so, when the manipulation occurred. And this can help to identify deep fakes and to provide evidence to counteract their harmful effects. So overall proof of existence can be a powerful tool for addressing the problem of deep fakes and ensuring the authenticity and integrity of digital media. Now, that to me is a protection against the worst case scenarios that we will see. As we've seen already, right? Russia has tampered with US elections. Uh, everybody tampers with everybody else's elections. And they're using these kinds of technologies to influence people with misinformation purposefully trying to make it look real. And so this is more of a protection against that. Now, whether or not it makes the current system better goes to the question of why would we want decentralized information over centralized information? And I think that question, the answer to that question depends on do you trust your government or not, right? So if you're in an authoritarian dictatorship, you don't want to trust your centralized government because they're probably trying to oppress you with propaganda and all kinds of other tools. But if you're in a free, quote unquote, free country where um, you trust your government, then you do want centralized information because you want one source to be there. And in this case, the technology is still useful because at least you can verify that the source of information that is coming from your trustworthy government is actually coming from that trustworthy government. It's not some nefarious actor who is posing as your trustworthy government and trying to influence you. Um, so it's really putting a lot more information and decision-making in the power of the people to decide ultimately who you're going to trust, but at least when you decide to trust somebody, that it is that person, that is in fact that person, and that you're not being deceived by some nefarious actor. Um, now, at the same time, yeah, go ahead. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I, I hope we get to dive into specifically that piece, like as a standalone conversation um, coming up. And also, I'd be curious if somebody creative, more creative than either of us possibly, but gets into all of this and is able to come up with a good sci-fi style, like a uh, uh, book on what kind of organization, what kind, like using this infrastructure and positing, okay, look, this is this is the logical like extrapolation of this in our world. I think this will be kind of fun. It's like, a, okay, there's a George Orwell sort of version of centralized information. What's the George Orwell decentralized <laughs> version of this information? Yeah, exactly. Um, right. Yeah. What what is the other evil end of this spectrum look like? And I think that's gonna be <laughs> that's gonna be way worse, which is why like these things might um bring on other stuff. Okay, so quickly conclude before you go then. Um, why does this make everything censorship resistant? Um, because if you're in one of those nefarious countries or oppressive governments and you are a whistleblower or you want to show the world what is happening in your country um, by attaching these files to a Bitcoin blockchain, um, which you have public access to, right? Nobody can regulate. Um, you can at least share this is what's happening here and let the world know that this is what's happening here, right? So um, in cases where human rights violations would be a massive issue, um, just having that and then being able to pull that up at the UN and say, look, like this is a violation of human rights and we need to take action. Um, that's another use case that, that, uh, that individual country cannot censor.
Okay. So that was a lot. Uh, thanks for tuning in. If you like this episode, please uh, like it, comment, subscribe, share, rate the podcast, sign up for our newsletter uh, to get exclusive perks. Also sign up for our discord. We just launched it. Um, you can find the link in the description below. Um, plus we're going to be launching some merch. What, what do they do if they don't like the episode? Just by the way. <laughs> if you don't like the episode, you can uh, just leave. Uh, just don't, <laughs> don't, don't actually give us constructive uh, criticism. If that's your thing, if that's your bag, we would like to hear that. Uh, but if you're just going to hate, just bounce because we don't need it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, catch us in the next one. Uh, till then.